0: Apache Druid is an open source analytics platform that came out of the company Metamarkets, which was an advertising technology company. Today, Imply.io is one of the leading new analytics providers for companies that want to do what is commonly called operational analytics. This is something where perhaps the data is coming in fast, you want to have slicing and dicing occur... You want to perhaps build interesting interfaces around that slicing and dicing of data. And Jod Naous is one of the people who is in charge of making this company tick. He's the VP of engineering and product at Imply. He's a friend and he's an engineer and investor that I deeply respect. In today's episode, we talk about how Imply is used to handle large scale analytic workloads. And we also talk a lot about market positioning. What are the different players in the big data analytics market today? What does Snowflake do? What does BigQuery do? What does Databricks do? Who are the different constituents? And what are their use cases? What's the Venn diagram of these different big data analytics use cases? It was a great wide-ranging conversation, and I, as always, enjoy talking to Jod. Jad, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you for having me again.
0: I am thrilled to have you again. I respect your opinion in infrastructure at a very deep level. And so I'd like to start with a fairly open discussion about a piece of data infrastructure. And this is just a broad-based data infrastructure question. I ask it to get your just your general temperature reading of the market, and gradually we'll get into more specific topics. But I've been really thinking deeply about what the ecosystem difference between Snowflake and Databricks is, and the Spark offering that stack. Do you have a perspective on those two sides of the market?
1: So Databricks is today trying to refashion itself as a data warehouse, but Spark is a general processing engine. And so if you look at Databricks' history over time, they kind of started with, hey, we're a general processing engine, but they couldn't really figure out what to sell there. They did a lot of ETL because that's really what requires a lot of generalized processing. Then they started to talk a lot about data science and machine learning. And much more recently, you hear that they're talking a lot more about data warehousing. With Spark being such a general processing engine, they could do all these things. And they could go and talk about all these different pieces. Whereas Snowflake knew what it was all the way from the very beginning. They are a data warehouse. They are a replacement for all the data warehouses that are on-prem, but in the cloud, they're cheaper. They're easier to use, scale out with, start and so on. A lot of Databricks' kind of use cases today are still ETL. Like that's their bread and butter. But from a hype perspective, from like a marketing and mission perspective, there's a big momentum in the market today behind data warehousing. And so that's why they're moving there and they're playing there. This isn't a judgment on whether they are a great data warehouse or not. I don't really have much of a say there, but from a marketing perspective, that's how I perceive it. But what I'm really interested in, to me, they're both Databricks and Snowflake and BigQuery, Redshift and all these systems, all live in the same area of the market. All live in the same, I guess, quadrant of the Gardner data analytics, magic quadrant, which is basically to say they're mostly focused on cold analytics. They're mostly focused on reporting queries, on things that professional analysts need or professional data engineers need to build out dashboards for executives or for business users. These are mainly batch-oriented reporting workflows that work on large quantities of data, they are not highly concurrent workflows, they don't have hundreds or thousands of users who are trying to access this data at the same time. They don't have a ton of ad hoc queries where people are hundreds or thousands of people at the same time trying to slice and dice the data. These are what I like to call cold analytics, kind of, they really focused on doing reporting workflows that don't necessarily need to be real time. Queries could take minutes, hours, maybe in the order of days, but that doesn't matter as much because the workflows are much more reporting-oriented. The area of the market that I'm more interested in is kind of like the other end of the spectrum, and this is where imply really lives, what we do. It's our bread and butter. And I call that area the hot analytics space. And here in this world... It's a different use case. It's a different user. It's a different workflow. And I'll give you a little bit of a kind of more concrete idea of what I'm talking about. Over the past five years, I've been noticing a really interesting trend in SaaS applications. And You can like see that more and more SaaS applications have some kind of analytics inside them. It's a little bit freaky because five years ago, we wouldn't think about a SaaS application and talking about enterprise applications, of course. But, like, you wouldn't think about them necessarily doing anything other than the function that they were built to do. But now having analytics inside your SaaS application is kind of standard, more or less. And if you don't have analytics inside a SaaS application that you're using, it's kind of like, well, okay, this is upcoming, or this is like, you got to pay for the enterprise feature and the enterprise feature has the analytical capability. But I think this is a trend that's going to continue. And the reason for that is I think more and more enterprise users really need data in order to do their day to day jobs. And they have to ask hundreds of questions out of data. They have to answer all those questions immediately. They have to explore and understand what's going on. And these people are not professional analysts. They cannot look at data in the abstract. They need data to live in their domain, to speak their language. And that's why we're seeing analytics kind of move inside SaaS applications, inside the tools where people work, because it's how they think. It's kind of there right at their fingertips. It's the world that they live in. the, The questions that they can ask are formulated not in SQL, but formulated in the language of the application or the domain that they work in. And I expect that this is a trend that's going to continue, and we're going to pretty much see analytics in pretty much every SaaS application out there. The future that I see is one where when you go and build an application, you have your transactional database for your metadata, like MySQL, Postgres, or whatever, and then you have your analytical database sitting right next to it, and that's Druid, hopefully. And this is very similar to the way that kind of Elasticsearch has become ubiquitous and has become kind of synonymous with search. Like, hey, I'm, I'm building an application, I need search, boom, Elasticsearch. And so that's how I see this world playing out. And and the interesting piece here is, as you scale out and build systems where you have hundreds or thousands of users executing analytics ad hoc on your data, you need systems that are really built and designed to be able to do these kinds of hot analytics use cases. So from a landscape perspective, Specifically around analytics, I kind of divide the world into these two areas, the cold analytics space and the hot analytics space.
0: And we can go a little bit deeper there, but I actually just want to want to zoom on a different facet of analytics, and that is embedded analytics. You, you touched on this a little bit, but essentially the idea that you want to make it very easy for users to embed analytic experiences into applications. So like I think the the great idea I think about is like the quantified self, right? Like the, the ultimate quantified self platform where you've got a bunch of sensors hooked up to your body, you've got the dream toilet that analyzes all of your uh, waste materials, you've got uh sensors that's in your sink. It's the best. I mean, <laughs> that's that's the dream vision. That's the moonshot, the toilet moonshot. But yeah, you have all these things like instrumenting all this data, and it gets has to get munged and data engineered and stuff. And then you have to have a really good analytics layer, an interact ideally an interactive analytics layer. Even if you're just a, a quote unquote non technical user who wants to use this out of the box quantified self platform, you want really cool graphics and slice and dice ability. So, if we're talking about that kind of domain, is that the sweet spot for imply?
1: That's a good question. I think that for us, we have two sweet spots. One is this embedded analytics where people want to build out applications that have analytics in them at large scale. And so they need something like Implied to be able to handle that level of analytics, that level that I guess the key requirement here for these embedded analytics is that they need to be low latency. They need to be real time. They need to work kind of in a way similar to like what, Users, what consumers want out of applications. They want to know now what's happening right now. They want to relate it to their current reality in the outside world. And if something, if you're looking at data inside your app that's a day old, it doesn't gel very well with a consumer like experience. And these people are also not very, they're not experts in data. And so they want to explore and kind of like, Dig in and drill down into that data and look at interesting trends and slice the data in certain interesting ways. So it's not a it's not like a professional analyst who constructs a SQL query that needs to execute in a certain way in order to get the data that's required across multiple tables that need to be joined, right? So from an embedded analytics standpoint, Druid and Imply has this sweet spot, which is where people require real-time analytics, both in the sense that it's immediate in terms of what's happening in the outside world. like You can see something in the outside world, and it's already recorded in your dashboard. And it's real-time in the sense of how quickly you can get to insights, how quickly you can get answers to your questions. And so that's what I call the infrastructure side of Imply, the infrastructure side of what we do, which is helping people build analytics into their applications. But Imply also has a, another part of the business, which is the more, you could call it next-generation BI. And that's where we provide horizontal-type analytics to users at a visual level. And so we have a, an application that we call Pivot, a product that we call Pivot. And you can think of Pivot as the equivalent of Excel for like it's a big it's a visual excel for large scale analytics it allows you to create all sorts of views visual views on data and kind of slice and dice and create formulas and and so on so you can get the answers that you need in an aggregated visual way and so in that space it's less about building applications and more about hey I'm a marketing person I want to figure out like what's happening with my ad right now. Like my team doesn't need to go and build an application to do this for me. I can just go open up Pivot and look at the marketing data and figure out what's going on. And so Pivot kind of allows people to build walled gardens around which they can go and like explore data and interact with it and figure out what's going on.
0: Hearing you talk about this makes me think a lot about the engineering problems that go into building this product. It's why I enjoyed our last conversation. It's why I'm looking forward to exploring this more deeply with you right now. I saw a tweet from George Fraser from a few days ago. George Fraser, the CEO of Fivetran. And he was essentially critiquing the fact that Uber Eats seems to occasionally drop packets I don't know if you order on Uber Eats much, but occasionally it like times out in weird ways or like a payment kind of fails. And you get a sense that something a little shaky is going on behind the scenes. DoorDash is a little bit more reliable. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Or is that like, is that foreign language to you? You well, can call your own meals.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, well, actually, I don't use Uber Eats very often. I often just use Seamless or Grubhub.
0: Seamless. Oh, man. I, you don't use DoorDash? No.
1: So, I'm a little bit cheap and all these companies ask you to pay a delivery fee and Seamless and Grubhub don't. And so, I just got used to it.
0: That's powerful, actually. Are the mobile apps okay?
1: I use the web. Why do you need a mobile app for something like ordering food?
0: (laughs) Well, a lot of times I'm leaving a location, like I'm leaving the South Bay and I want to order and I just want to have the, you know, kick off the async and, and have my food waiting for me as soon as I arrive home. You know what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not it's not that fancy. It's not gonna like track your driver and figure out where they are on the on the. Look, map.
0: I'm not gonna open up a mobile web view and order food through that.
1: <laughs> You're not gonna. Well, I, I me? think I think that exposes the age difference between us here. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so.
0: But anyway, seriously, like he's criticizing Kafka. He basically posted this in I hope George hears this, or, and maybe I'm, maybe he'll prove me wrong about this, but I think this is what he was implying, is that in this supply chain of data, we know that Kafka is the weak point, and it, this must be causing problems for Uber. And I saw that, and I, basically, he's trying to conclude from a user interface experience that Kafka is causing data inconsistency problems. I'm not sure George Frazier knows how much potential there is for inconsistency across an entire distributed system. I mean, you can have failures in React right? Like essentially on a single node system, you can have data inconsistency issues. So I say this just to tee up a conversation about building this end-to-end distributed systems experience. To me, it seems very challenging to make interactive distributed systems with basically a data warehouse platform. Am I mistaken?
1: It is a pretty big deal. So let me maybe first comment on, on George's tweet. I don't. I, I think he is just being tongue-in-cheek here. I don't think he is. Uh, I know he
0: is. I'm giving, him, I'm, I'm giving him a total hard time. I'm <laughs> giving him a total hard time. I'm being a massive troll. Yeah. I, I feel like George is somebody who respects trolls. So I'm trying to be a massive troll.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but the second piece is that actually building real-time distributed systems at massive scale is a huge, is very difficult. It's a huge undertaking. And it's not just about like, okay, is it a distributed system that can deliver a query right now at the performance that you're looking for. And like we do this, like we, we run this into, into this issue in the POCs all the time, which is like, oh, yeah, let's look at this system versus that system and like figure out what the query performance is, is like. And, like, great. Okay, maybe like they're comparable. But the question is, what happens when you need to change something in your system? What happens when you need to increase the number of nodes? What happens when you need to decrease the number of nodes? what happens when you need to change the query patterns or the load that's actually executing and, and so on. And so it's not just about like delivering the performance, but also delivering the day two operations of how do you expand, how do you evolve, how do you move forward? And Druid, so there's like a, a, a lot of people who say, well, oh, Apache Druid is hard to actually get started with. That's actually true. And that's mainly because it was built to run at scale. It was built to handle all these kind of day two type operations and maybe like, you know, the 90 day operations where you start thinking about, hey, let's go scale and let's go do something else. So generally, like we find that like a lot of people forget, you know, that aspect of running distributed systems at scale is important. Trying to make sure that these systems continue to run and that they're flexible. And I guess it's always important to, to keep that in mind. But to your question earlier, yes, it is very hard. And one of the things that we're actually doing right now at Imply is we're redesigning our platform and we are breaking down every layer of how Imply delivers functionality to our users, including Druid, because Druid is part of our bigger platform. And we are redesigning it, keeping in mind time to value. And so this next generation of Imply is going to be a SaaS platform. It's going to be more a system where send us your data and we'll give you sub second queries it's going to be we're at like starting with the ingestion piece one of the biggest things that we're doing is moving from a pull model to a push model where you can send us the files you can push the files to us or you can push individual events to us that's huge because it means that now you can send your events from anywhere you don't have to do all this integration in terms of opening up your infrastructure to get the data into Druid and so on. But the second piece is because it's SaaS, it's going to allow us to deliver a much tighter performance management experience. One of the interesting things that I've noticed in the data infrastructure space is that performance doesn't seem like a core value prop from a user experience perspective, if, if that makes sense. Like. What I'm talking about is like there aren't that many really great performance, like tuning user experiences in the data world. But for imply, what we do is literally like our core value prop is to give you the best performance you can get for your analytics and being able to beat all these other systems. And so a performance workflow is really core. And we're working on a dedicated performance workflow that allows you to manage. The performance of your queries and be able to say things like, I want an SLA of X on this particular set of queries, and I want an SLA of Y on that particular set of queries, and for imply to automatically handle and figure out how to deliver that SLA for you behind the scenes. This is a pretty huge undertaking, but from a technical perspective, we have all of the pieces there to actually be able to deliver on that capability. And that's what we're going to be working on over the next 18 months. So to all the listeners there who might be really interested and excited about something like that, hit us up. We've got a lot of positions open for working on this cool stuff.
0: Absolutely, It's got to be one of the top tier companies related to data warehousing, data infrastructure, obviously analytics. I want to reverse troll George Fraser now. So Fivetran represents... Fairly high level data infrastructure, and this is pretty powerful. I think that's representative of the broader landscape of data infrastructure today. It's getting high level. It's getting easier to work with. It's certainly easier. That what were you doing during Hadoop days? Were you tracking the data space during Hadoop days?
1: Well, during the Hadoop days, I was at AppDynamics, and we were at the time trying to build a metrics system on top of HBase. That was Really hard. HBase sucks. No offense to the HBase people,
0: but well, I just find it funny like that's trivial today, right? That kind of the, an equivalent application trivial today. It's like a some SaaS solution, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a ton of
1: time series databases that you just like pop off and put in.
0: Okay, so strategically, Imply wants to like raise the level of abstraction as high as possible, and you're describing things that are very, very hard. I'm very curious. What's it like to play in the sandbox with today's data infrastructure abstractions, like what's useful to you?
1: Like from an application developer perspective? or from Yeah,
0: like, like are you guys making use of things like Fivetran or Kafka or Kinesis or Redshift? Like I have no idea what goes on behind the scenes.
1: So that's a very good question. For us, our core bread and butter is Apache Druid, right? So this is an open source database. It's all custom code built from the ground up.
0: Absolutely. Founded in MetaMarkets. Yep.
1: Founded in MetaMarkets a while ago, spun out. Netflix, I think, was the first big user. They wrote up a bunch of blogs recently about their use of uh, of Druid. But for a long time, we used to rely on Hadoop for ingesting data into Imply for doing batch ingestion. And that was a big pain point for a lot of our customers And a lot of the Apache Druid users. And so we ended up building native ingestion within imply within, sorry, within Druid in order to alleviate that pain. And so now we think our native ingestion system is actually better than, than Hadoop. It's not as performant, but most of the users that we know of on Apache Druid today or on at imply are actually using native ingestion. And so that's one piece of software that we, one dependency from a big data system that we kind of dropped out. Now, when we start talking about push, I was mentioning how our, new, our next generation product is going to have a, the ability for you to just push events directly to us. Like, we need some system like Kafka. We need a queuing system that allows us to hold these events and then distribute them to multiple parallel processors and so on. Do we want to reinvent the wheel on something like that? And the answer is no, we'll just use Kafka. And the question is always for somebody who is building a database or a data system, what are the things that you just take off the shelf? And what are the things that you build from the ground up? We have me and Gian Merlino, the CTO and co-founder at Imply, we have this constant running debate about whether we want to build out fact-to-fact joins in Druid. And the question for us is always, well, do we go and build it out from scratch, like from the ground up? To be something that's really tightly integrated into Druid, that works really well with it, super fast, kind of really built out for how Druid works? Or do we go and adopt something like Trino and maybe fork it out and then integrate it over time into what we do? I don't think we have a great answer at this point around which one of these actually works better, because it's not yet clear to us, for example, whether. Things like fact-to-fact joins or kind of what what we call data warehousing query capabilities are commoditized enough for us to not care about making it a proprietary, like or not really proprietary, but more like a, a core strength of what Druid does. So you were asking a little bit about abstractions and what are the different pieces, like what are the tools in the sandbox that we think about? So Kafka is probably one of the most interesting ones because at some point you're going to have queuing. And you need something that does it at scale, that allows you to distribute execution across multiple systems. So Kafka or something like it. Stream processing has been something that I've always wanted to see how we could use, but never ended up in a situation where we would use a stream processor rather than build a custom consumer from these queuing systems. And that could be something that we end up using for our next generation platform. One area that I've never really understood around these stream processors or like how they get used is their attempt to be databases at the same time as stream processing engines. That's always been something I never fully grokked. And then, of course, there's like the data sinks, the data warehouses or, or the data lakes or databases, analytical databases like Druid. I mean, I could go on and on in terms of all the various abstractions that could be useful. So like there's the general processing engines like Spark or really Hadoop in the older world or streaming processors in the new world. But it, it'll it be hard to kind of just paint the full picture of the full landscape in the in the short time that we have.
0: Trino. Trino sounds really familiar. Is that the Starburst fork? Yeah. Or sorry, sorry, the Presto fork.
1: Yes, that's the Presto form. What happened there
0: again? Can you remind me? Dude, this open source drama, I can't take it. Uh, I can't handle it. I need like a people magazine for open source.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so what happened there? Well, Facebook disagreed with the three co-founders of the Presto project. They weren't happy with how things were moving. They left. They started a foundation. They forked off Presto. Then they joined Starburst. And they renamed Presto to Trino, is basically how, how it played out.
0: Gotcha. So Trino, did they diverge meaningfully at this point?
1: I think they have diverged. I'm not sure to what degree. I'm not sure exactly of all the differences at this point.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So you mentioned Trino just in the context of kind of the next act of imply, I guess, or like like where you could expand into? Is that? Did I understand that correctly?
1: Well, so Trino is is like a, a general, it's like a query federation. Yeah, engine. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I know what it is.
1: Well, I just wanted to explain it in the sense of like their query federation engine, we are a database. So we would be something that sits under Trino as opposed to like us trying to build Trino. Like we don't want to go and federate queries with other systems. But Trino does have a really interesting capability, which is the ability to execute shuffle joins or multi-stage queries and so on. Right. And so that particular query capability, that engine piece is something that could be very helpful for us.
0: You wouldn't build that into Druid. You're saying you would slot yourself under Presto and put that within imply infrastructure.
1: Well, we're not really sure what we would do there. The question is like, okay, well, can we build off of what other really smart and great people have already built and how can we use that and there's a lot of options we don't want to appropriate somebody else's work but at the Mm. same time
0: here's a question let's say you do have some crazy ambitious project like you want to build Trino on top of Druid and have basically I mean have the end user experience be the same but you insert some like querying middleware maybe it lets you federate queries to GraphQL for I don't know whatever you want to do in that kind of project, are you able to go to, or let's say you let's say just for the for the sake of argument, let's say you do it with Starburst, mm. you're going to do it with you're going to do it with Presto. Is that the kind of situation where you can go to Starburst and say, "Hey, Starburst, we want you to give us a solutions architect and help us build this thing"? Like I, I'm just trying to understand like corporate dynamics for this kind of thing. Can you leverage help from the other big corp?
1: Well, it depends on whether or not it helps them with their go to market mm with their sales. So if you think of Presto or Trino as a platform for integrating with other databases and allowing you to have a uniform querying experience across all these different systems, then one of the strategies that they could pursue is partnerships with data stores where they could go and query data from. There has been attempts in the past to enable Trino, I think or maybe Presto, I forget which one. To uh, query data from Druid, there's a ton of integrations and connectors for Presto and to Trino and to other data stores. So I don't know whether this is a strategy that they're going after immediately, or like whether Druid is particularly interesting. Most people who use Trino use it on, but like the biggest use case is using it on data files like ORC or Parquet, as opposed to using it on other data warehouses or other data systems like. Like Druid,
0: so you you've been at imply for two years at this point, or eighteen months, something like that.
1: Yeah, almost two years. Almost two two years years. next month.
0: Okay, so you're an experienced engineering leader at this point. You've got a lot of experience. What kind of new stuff have you learned over the last year?
1: Mm. So let me maybe talk a little bit about. Well, do you want to talk about like? Should I talk about technical stuff or should I talk about like organizational stuff and leadership and? What are you interested in? I mean, anything
0: just ordered in terms of impact to how you see the world personally?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the biggest things that have happened over the past two years is COVID.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember now that. You, you remember? Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> By the way, anyway, so... seriously, I'll give a shout out on the air to how nice of a guy you are and how, how generous you were to me. It was a very difficult time for me and it was nice to have a friend such as yourself. Oh,
1: I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. And basically, so one of the interesting things is like before COVID happened, I was actually trying to get more people into the office. We were trying to centralize more in the Bay Area so that we can gain more locality efficiencies, like, you know, people working together. And what's happened over the past year is that we were kind of like, we're like forced to go back into, okay, let's go redistribute people. Let's go. Everything is remote now. And luckily for us I mean we had remote work before we we were mainly a remote culture a lot of the work that we were doing was open source and so like there were systems in place to make that work possible and so it wasn't too hard for us to continue in a remote work situation but one thing that I've learned over the past year or like really yeah, over the past 6 months as we were trying to figure out what imply what the next generation of imply looks like what this SAS project will look like Is that it's really, really hard to align people on an ambiguous project across multiple teams in a remote world. Like the the biggest difference between working in an office altogether and working on Zoom is that you cannot have an ad hoc conversation. You cannot like poke the person next to you and be like, hey, look at this, what do you think? And then like look around you and pull them in and, and so on. And that has led to a lot of churn in terms of figuring out what we do, how we do it. Like we would write a PRD and then kind of tens of comments would come in and then like keeping track of which comments were answered, not answered, and like whether we fixed the PRD to match that, the comments that were resolved and so on. Like just like this, this churn cycle has been really hard. And I'm surprised, I mean, There are some productivity tools that we've decided are just not good for this kind of stuff. Oh, man. Oh, oh,
0: man. I don't want to guess, but (laughs) I guess you can't tell me. Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, man. That's a hot one.
1: (laughs) And it's really related to how the real time, the communication and the changes need to be. Like when you do a comment, how quickly do you see it on your screen? Do you even see it on your screen at all? without having to reload the page. Like that is such an important piece of the UX for remote collaboration. that now like we're like thinking, okay, well, what do we use? How do we, how do we fix this? How do we move forward there? But yeah, there's a lot of like thinking now about how do we work together better remotely with better tools.
0: Man, we got to wrap up, but uh, <laughs> I, I think we have to wrap up, right? It's been like 45 minutes or 50 minutes or something. 40, yeah, 41 minutes. Yeah. I wish we could talk longer. I got to go to something. You know, physical space matters these days. You actually have to travel through physical space to get to places that you need to go to. Yes. This is a yes. novel development for me.
1: <laughs> uh, well, you can't zoom it in? You, you can't know. have a remote uh, remote lunch?
0: No, actually not. Uh, it's very interesting. Why is your background your office? <laughs> it's ridiculous,
1: man. <laughs> <laughs> because why not like it's like uh, you know people we're reopening offices right i actually
0: really like it i mean most people like choose an island or like a beach or like some cool pattern in the background you're just in an office yeah man
1: <laughs> we're reopening offices
0: <laughs> you move to a place where there's still an office or is there is there an apply office near you no you're not you're remote now No, but no, you guys I'm are not. you guys are reopening offices yeah. right yeah we're reopening it, offices there's no way that's going to work, right? Like, who's going to go back? No no offense to your team. I don't mean to undermine you on air. It's just, I don't think that's going to work for you.
1: I don't think it's going to work uh, for Amazon. I think you're underestimating the number of people who like to actually meet and work together. Hmm. Like, okay. humans right. humans are social beings. All right.
0: Okay. All right.
1: And I like, think of it this way. Like, you know, you're a young person who moved, left their parents' home. You're still a bachelor working, like, uh, well... You know, I, in your situation, you're so used to it (laughs) because like, you don't work in an office, but like for other people, it's like, it's like the office is like where they go and mingle and like have conversations and like make friends, especially like when they move to a new city or, or like they move out, right? Like that's where they go and build a life, like build a personal life. Like that's where it all starts, like work. Otherwise, like, where would you go meet people? It's It's a lot harder. And I think like you can maybe think about the social dynamics at a bigger scale. Like, well, should people ever, like when people graduate from school, should they leave their hometowns at all and like go into places like the Bay Area where like they would work on similar things as everybody else? Well, that's a different, like that's a bigger story. If people don't move out of their parents' houses or like if they don't move out of their hometowns, like they have social lives and they have these networks that have already, that already exist and at that point, like, it becomes a much more interesting question. But I think that's a dynamic that'll only play out over a much longer period of time as opposed to right now. I also don't think like, okay, let me just clarify. Imply is not gonna ask all the people who are remote to come back to the office. And like our current, like the way it's gonna work, it's gonna be more optional. And like people will come in like two or three days a week to work with the teams that are local if they want to.
0: All right, well, I mean, I would be willing to, to bet you an ETH on this if you want. <laughs> that,
1: that, that, what, that nobody will come.
0: I, I mean, it's not going to work. I, I just don't think people are going to want to come back to the office. I think it's going to be mutiny. So uh, we could bet an ETH. We could bet a Bitcoin if you want to go high stakes.
1: <laughs> well, you, you know, we, could a, up, we
0: could bet a sandwich. You, you know, I head
1: up engineering, right? So I could be like, hey, guys, we'll split this ETH. But all of you have to come to the office for like one day every week. So we can rob... Jeff, right. Oh, so, so I'm sorry. So one day a week? Okay. Wait. So you're just you're just
0: trying to get people to come back one day a week?
1: Yeah, it's like one to three days a week. Like it's uh, it's kind of optional.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's that's actually kind of appealing. I mean, do you try to sync everybody, or is, or you just say like go one day and just like you're in a ghost office? Well, we,
1: we probably want to sync people who are within yeah. a team to work together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Huh.
0: Yeah. I, okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. I like that idea. Well,
1: That's what a lot of companies are doing.
0: Okay. All right. I guess I was mistaken. I, okay. It's still like, then you're, you're, if you're at Google, you're in like a, an office that has one fifth of the population it's supposed to have. It's kind of spooky, right?
1: Well, so Google, I think is like only allowing 20%. I mean, for these big companies and these big campuses, they have a problem. Like, so Salesforce, for example, I think is now subletting part of their office space because it's, like, it's just like this massive tower where they were expecting like everybody to come in, but now they're only going to have part-time people. So there's definitely like a big dynamic that's going to change and, and how offices will work and so on. So for us, like, we, we, like all our desks are hotel desks. So like, you have to reserve it if you want to use it there and mm. go to the office.
0: Oh, that's cool, actually. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Well,
1: I got to go. I
0: wish we could do this longer. Are you going to be in town anytime soon? Can we do it in person? I, I got a studio space now.
1: <laughs> <I'm> totally serious. <laughs> Maybe next time. I'm, I'm planning to start flying into the Bay Area like once a month. Oh, awesome. I'm like spending a week here and then going back. Like my job is literally every day kind of talk to people in meetings, like from the morning till the evenings, like all meetings. And like just doing it over Zoom, is like disgusting. Yeah, it's not good. Jeff, great all chatting right. with you, man.
0: Yeah, it's it's a real pleasure. I, I really can't wait to see you. It was, it was such, such a pleasure talking to you during the pandemic. So, um, uh, you know. Well, thank you again for having me. Okay, anytime. Talk soon, Jad.